global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update is brought to you by American Arbitration Association International Trade or Business Dispute. Resolve faster with the International Center for Dispute Resolution, the leader in alternative dispute resolution around the world, ICDR.org. Iron ore climbing to the highest since June, boosting mining companies and helping equity markets recover intraday losses. Crude oil is retreating after Kuwait workers said they would end a strike. And we check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures up two points. Dow E-mini futures up one. And NASDAQ E-mini futures up seven. DAX in Germany is up almost two-tenths percent. Ten-year Treasury up three-thirty seconds. The yield 1.77 percent. Yield on the two-year 0.76 percent. NYMEX crude oil down 2.2 percent or 91 cents to $40.17 a barrel. COMEX gold down two-tenths percent or $2.60 to $12.51.80 an ounce. The euro, $1.1374. The yen, 109.28. The European Commission sending Google a formal antitrust complaint. It accused the company of striking restrictive contracts that prevent makers of tablets and phones from adding competing apps and web browsers. Intel down almost 2% this morning after its first quarter revenue and forecast for the next three months missed analyst estimates. And Dish Network posted profit that beat analyst estimates after a January price increase and Sling TV subscriber gains helped cushion a drop in satellite TV users. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thank you so much. It is 848 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Megan McCardle, a columnist for Bloomberg View. We all love farm-to-table food, don't we? Or maybe we just think we love it. An exhaustive investigation by a Tampa Bay Times food critic reveals just how little of the food advertised as organic, locally sourced, non-GMO fare actually fits the description. Given the ubiquity of these anomalies, it's hard to believe there isn't considerable calculation there. And it's not hard to figure out why. Consumers don't really want to buy farm-to-table food. What they want to buy is the moral satisfaction of it. After all, if you're actually looking for farm-fresh vegetables, you probably won't be satisfied with something weeks old. On the other hand, if you're just looking for moral satisfaction, well, the nice thing about selling intangibles is there's no real difference between being told you're consuming locally grown foods and actually doing so. Restaurants shouldn't deceive their customers. Part of the reason they get away with it is people don't check. And part of the reason they do it is that most people seem unwilling to pay, in money or in limited selection, the cost of actually eating local in most of the country. If people really love farm-to-table food, they'll be checking provenance with suppliers and paying enormous premiums for their limited menus. If they just want to love the idea of it, well, they'll probably keep eating just about like they do now. I'm Megan McCardle. For more View, please go to BloombergView.com or View Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. The President of the United States is in Riyadh. He moves to London for, I believe, a birthday party for the Queen, and then, Mike, I'm guessing, to Germany. I don't have the itinerary in front of me. What he knows is 2016 is not 1973. If you look at the chronology of American diplomacy in 73, it's possibly original outside World War II. Mike, stock market crash. We go to August, October 6, the Yom Kippur War. We get to the end of the year through historic negotiation, and within that was our guest, Robert Hormatz, the ambassador 
now with Kissinger Associates. Michael, why don't you pick it up on the idea that this is not 1973? Well, this is uh, many years down the road. For the first time, it seems, in quite some time, we have a president who is openly somewhat disdainful uh, of the Saudis. We've always, and you read Dennis Ross, Ambassador Ross's great new book, Doomed to Succeed, about the U.S.-Israeli relationship. The attitude at the State Department was always, they've got oil, we need them. And Obama seems to be saying, they need us as much as we need them in this new world you know, where they're facing off with Iran. Well, it's a very complicated picture, as you correctly point out. Uh they still need uh, the protection of the American Navy uh, for their oil facilities in the Persian Gulf, and the American Navy still plays a very important role there, as well as in protecting the sea lanes that oil uh, goes through to get to various other parts of the world. So that part is true. But it's also been true over decades and decades uh, as a result of Saudi wealth and the willingness of Saudis to provide support for friends and allies of the United States that we call on them regularly. And probably, even though their oil revenues are down considerably, probably we'll have to call on them again. The problem is that the distrust has increased dramatically, in part because the Saudis are skeptical of the deal we've made with Iran, and in part because the United States didn't do something that it did very, very thoroughly in 1973, and then again in the first Gulf War, which was consult on a very regular and intimate basis with all the Arab governments in the region. I remember working for Dr. Kissinger when we were doing the the, the negotiations between Israel and its neighbors, the so-called disengagement negotiations, uh, after the 73 war. And there was a lot of consultation with countries in the region. Even though they didn't have troops involved, we knew they had a voice in discussions in the Middle East. So there was a particular amount of consultation with Saudi Arabia, even at that time with Hafez al-Assad, who was running Syria, and many, many other countries in the region. So you've got to keep up with all these countries and maintain their confidence. How much do we need the, the Saudis now, given the change in oil production, the fact that, you know, we are producing so much oil again? Well, that's a good question. Some people would argue, well, we don't import as much oil. We don't depend as much on the Saudis or the rest of the world for oil. But I would say that that's true in a direct sense. The fact, however, is the Saudis are the marginal producer of oil. There is a world price for oil. So if something were to happen to disrupt Saudi production, the price would go up in many parts of the world, and there could be a lot of volatility. Uh, the other part of it is that many of our allies and friends depend very heavily on Saudi oil. They are the marginal producer of oil around the world. And if there were to be a security disruption, some disruption of the Gulf or terrorism in Saudi Arabia or internal problems in Saudi Arabia, and that caused a disruption in the supply of oil to other countries, that could have a strategic effect on right. our major allies. Ambassador, I kid you that you were at Sykes-Picot in 1915. <laughs> I guess you weren't, but I'm going to put I missed out, it by a year. Uh, by a year. I'm going to put out on, um, on, on Twitter right now the actual map T.E. Lawrence had 
that he presented to the War Committee in 1980. I would respectfully suggest, sir, nothing's changed. Within our new world order, what's the map going to look like for the next president? Really interesting question. I mean, there's a great uh, book by Gert, about Gertrude Bell, who were also worked on this, really the first woman diplomat to play a major role in the region. And it describes how these borders were constructed. And it had to do with tribal relationships and giving certain territory to certain uh, members of the royal family in Saudi Arabia um, and other parts of the region. The problem now is that those borders then and those borders now really didn't necessarily reflect the interests or the views of a lot of the people in the region, maybe the leaders, but not necessarily the people. And now the border between Iraq and Syria, while it is there physically, is really not necessarily there from the point of view of the people in the region. And and ISIS has broken it down. There are even within Iran, there are various power groups. Is there a border Shiites. between Iran and Saudi Arabia? That's the arch issue other than the Arabian Sea. Yeah, Saudi Arabia and, and Iran, I don't think the issue is a border issue. I think it's much more uh, an issue of, okay. of, the, of national competition and various religious groups, sec, uh, groups dealing or fighting with one another at various points. But that border is not so much in contention, but the... South, the border between Iraq and mm-hmm. uh, and Syria certainly is there. And then you've got a lot of Irredentist movements. You've got the Kurds who would like to have a Kurdish belt that goes across northern Syria and northern Iraq. The Turks are concerned about that because they think that would strengthen yeah. the hands of the Turks, of the, of the Kurds in Turkey. So you've got a lot of these ethnic groups that have very powerful transborder roles. We'll, we'll talk about this more, but um, briefly, because we're going to run out of time, and then we'll come back and and finish the the thought. But I'm wondering about where Saudi Arabia goes from here. They have the external competition you're talking about, but also they seem to be having trouble within the kingdom uh, of uh, you know the the royal family. Yes, this is the, the they they there there are lots of reports. It's hard to know what's going. On. I've been to Saudi many times. You can talk about many things in Saudi Arabia to Saudis, but talking about the politics of the royal family, no one really wants to speak of. But it has gotten, as you correctly point out, into the public of late. I think the House of Saud understands that for the stability of the House of Saud and the House of and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, they have to maintain unity uh, within that family. And that unity has depended very heavily on reverence mm-hmm. for and respect for the king. That is going to be critical in the future. Well, Robert Hormetz with us. We will continue on this discussion. Again, the president and Riyadh will talk much more here about the more narrow discussions of the moment. Uh, Mr. Hormetz is with Kissinger Associates and, of course, out of the Fletcher School, Tufts uh, University. Uh, futures up two, down futures up four. We have another hour of Bloomberg surveillance, and we do that with Robert Hormetz. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning.